Uh, this morning, we will complete our study through the book of Mark. It was January 2022 that we started the book of Mark. And uh, with breaks in between doing other things, we've spent our time gone pretty steadily for us. Uh, often going through books, it feels too fast. I remember finishing Ephesians uh, in two years, and it felt like that could have been at least twice as long. Um, Mark feels similar. There's joy in being done and, and moving on and thinking about what God is bringing, but also uh, sadness and knowing. I can't, I'm, I'm not a very smart man, so I can't think of a better way to describe it. I tried to think of one, but often when I, I finish preaching through a book, it feels like breaking up with a girl that I know I didn't treat right. Uh, and I feel like, man, I can't go back and do that again. Uh, but... Sorry, I told you I'm not that smart. I'm sure there's a better way to describe that, but I think you know what I mean in my humble Menifee way of speaking. Uh, but as we finish Mark this morning, there is much to be encouraged about, much to see, and uh, much to remember and know of what's going on. If you remember when we started Mark, Mark 1.1, Mark tells us the purpose in which he wrote. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark starts like uh, is consistent throughout Mark in just a rapid pace. As we come to Christmas, we'll be reading Luke and we'll be reading Matthew, thinking of the incarnation. Uh, and many of you, you, you probably feel like many of us, like that's a necessity for Christmas time. That's, we have taken this pagan holiday and made it ours, and it is about the birth of Christ, and that's good and important. We share with Matthew and Mark, or Matthew and Luke, rather, uh, spending time in remembering that. Mark is like, nope, I don't need that part, just moving on. Mark goes immediately to John the Baptist and him proclaiming the way of Christ and that Christ the Messiah is coming. And Jesus then immediately in Mark, we're told what he came to do. What is the gospel of Christ? What is he here to accomplish? What is he going to do? Mark quickly moves into that. And first in 1.15, we see his preaching that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark immediately moves to what did Christ preach while he is on earth? He, printed, he preached a gospel of repentance and faith in what God's good news, God's plan is. And we see that throughout the gospel of Mark. Uh, three times we see Jesus be very clear about what all of this, the gospel is leading up to, to his disciples which helps us to see what he was preaching to them and teaching and preparing them for. What is the gospel of Christ? Well, he began to teach them. We see in Mark 8 that the Son of Man, who is this Son of God? He is the Son of Man who will suffer many things, be rejected by the chief priests and elders and scribes and killed, and after three days rise again. The disciples meet this with either rebuke or confusion. Mark 9, 31, he says again, Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. He continues to tell them this as we've spent the last few weeks or couple months in that last week of Jesus' life as he went to Jerusalem, and now he has rejected what he has said is coming about. He tells them as they're approaching, as they're heading to Jerusalem, the same. Mark 10, 33 through 34. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Christ is increasingly clear with them about exactly what is going to happen. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe in the gospel. And he's saying, what is the gospel going to be? What is the good news of what is coming? Christ is declaring the good news is the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will be killed. And I think they stop hearing at that point. They, they don't understand how that could be the good news that he would die. And they miss every time that he says, in three days... He will rise again. 
They hear him say it over and over and over. And you would think the word should be enough, right? Like we so arrogantly read the Gospels and hear the disciples' stories and what Jesus is saying to them, and we think, man, how could they be so dumb? How could they not get it? And we forget that the truth of the Gospel is in the words of Christ. But the power of the Gospel is not in us hearing the words. Salvation comes by hearing, but it is not accomplished in hearing. The accomplishment of salvation was when He died at the hands of them, but paid for the wrath of God. And the declaration of that victory is when He rose. These people are justified and saved. Through hearing, but not by hearing. It is not the simple hearing of the truth of Christ that saves, but it is the power of Christ that changes hearts. And that's true even in the resurrection. It's not just the simple seeing that Christ has risen that saves the disciples. We will see this morning the response of many to the resurrection of Christ, those who knew Him and follow Him. The response was rarely immediately good. It was fear, insecurity, unsurety of what to do, running, fleeing, being quiet about it, asking questions, doubting one another, not understanding what was going on. Because it is not the sight of Jesus resurrected that saved them. It was the power of Jesus resurrected. It's the application of the redemption of Christ As Danny reminded us this morning, we will never measure up. We will never be saved. We will never get enough information to save us. Hear enough of the right things. Gain enough knowledge. Salvation is not about your increase of knowledge. When we're talking about being justified or saved from your sin. You will never measure up. And so what is your hope as a Christian? Well, your hope to be saved is not that you hear more, not that you see more, but that you would be humbled by divine grace under the power of Christ, empowered by the Spirit to understand the reality that you are not saved by what you see. You are saved by what He's done. You are not saved by what you hear. You are saved by what He has accomplished. And you must hear things to understand that. But often I think we think, if I could just have been there, if I would have just seen the resurrected Christ, then I would believe, right? We have our own idioms that seeing is believing. We we have in the book of Luke an instance where there is a man who had to see to believe, right? You know his name? Yeah, Thomas, right? And what does Jesus tell Thomas when Thomas says, now that he has seen, he believes? Does anybody remember? Yeah, I heard, I heard it whispered that blessed are those who believe and have not seen. More blessed are those who have not seen and believe. Because it's not Thomas's sight that saved him. It's the work and the power of Christ. And there is a blessing, not just in seeing, but knowing and having that reality worked in you. And so for for many, they look at what is the end of Mark in in 8. And you'll look in your Bible this morning. If you have your Bible out, you'll notice there's verses after that. And we're going to talk about that next week. But if your Bible is a a faithful translation, there's a little subheading there that tells you uh, these are doubtful. These, These verses... Uh, were included in earlier English translations, uh, but are not found in the earliest manuscripts of the church. If you hear all of that and you're like, I don't even know what we're talking about right now, just wait till next week. But verses 1 through 8 are, are the ending of Mark. And as we look at this ending, what we see are some disciples, these ladies, who are the initial observers of the tomb, coming, hearing that Christ is risen, And not responding in faith and salvation, but in fear. But as Mark does through the whole gospel, he's moving quickly. He's moving powerfully. He's not giving every detail of every story. Remember, we've talked about the difference. And and you know these people. You know when you start to talk to someone and you're like, I'm just going to get the clear, straight facts here. 
right? I'm gonna get in, get out. I'm gonna go ask them a question, they're gonna give me the answer. You know there's other people that if you're gonna ask them a simple question, you're gonna have to prepare for a long answer, right? When you say, how do I get to the store? One person's gonna tell you, you open up your phone, here's the address, enter it, it'll get you there. The other person's gonna go, you know, I went to a store one time. <laughs> Stores are funny things, aren't they? Like, oh no, here we go. I, I, and I say it in the, oh no, here we go way, but I'm probably Matthew, not Mark, so anyway. Uh, as Mark tells us, there is a rapid pace to the accomplishment of Christ. And the power is not in all of the details that are going on. Yes, they display it in every gospel. Praise God, he gave us Matthew and Luke and John. But in Mark, it is quick and it is aggressive and it is to the point. In Mark 10, 45, declaring for us that even the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served rather, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is rapid pace at the gospel and the accomplishment of the gospel that Christ came to die and that after his death, he will rise again. And his people should place their hope. They should repent of sin and rest in that gospel promise of Christ. And that rapid fire promise is rapid fire finished at the end of Mark. This surprising end in the response to the resurrection makes some people uncomfortable. It's why that portion in your Bible probably exists, because people read it and they go, wait, there has to be more. You can't just finish here. But the earliest writings don't include those sections. And though it's a bit shocking, it's not shocking in Christ that He did what He said He would do. See, the work of the resurrection was not just a momentary function and He accomplished it and then it was over. The work of the resurrection was an accomplished work with ongoing actions, ongoing effect forever changing His people. And we'll look at verses this morning that tell you about that, that reality in your life of the resurrection. It's not that they just saw Jesus for a moment. The book of Acts even indicates that to us, that Jesus' resurrection was not a few minutes or a few days, that He actually continued to appear to His disciples over a period of 40 days until He ascended. As you look at your other Gospels, you have accounts of these uh, interactions in Matthew and in Luke and in John, uh, but it is not a full detail of the 40 days, just as you read the Gospels, and it's primarily three years of Christ's life. It's not everything that went on in those three years, but as John says, this which has been recorded has been recorded that you might know who He is. And Mark, in the same way, quickly gets to the resurrection, declares it, and there's no confusion about who holds the power of resurrection. It is not the sight of Jesus that saves the disciples, but the grace of God that allows the words and the work of Christ to be accomplished in them. So let's look together at these verses, Mark 16, 1 through 8. If you look with me at your Bible, starting at verse 1, it says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and faithfulness. 
We thank you, Lord, in all of our sin and failure and all the truth that we will never measure up. Uh, you have not left us to be the measuring stick of our salvation. As your word and your law declares our condemnation, as it makes clear that none will measure up, as Danny reminded us this morning, as Psalm 15 declares your perfect righteous standard, as Paul writes in uh, many of his epistles, that standard makes clear where we stand, that we deserve to be condemned. We thank you, Father, that you are faithful, that you have made and fulfilled promises to save not only your people of Israel, but to graft into that people Gentiles from every nation. That though it was a mystery to them of how you would accomplish that, it is a blessing and a revealed gift, a mystery fulfilled in us that we together would declare your glory, your goodness, your kindness, your grace, that we would call all to repentance, to the forgiveness of sin, that they would live in newness of life because of your kindness and goodness and accomplishments in the cross. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we just walk through these verses, I want to sit with you first in verses 1 through 4, the anxiety at the death of Christ. Not Christ's anxiety, but the ladies who are there. If you remember, these ladies were already mentioned in verse 40 uh, and 47 and 41 of Mark 15. Uh, as Jesus was being crucified, there were also women looking on at a distance. When he was in Galilee, those were the women who followed him and ministered to him. These were women who served Christ uh, throughout his ministry. Women like we spent time discussing, and you could go back and listen or read, look in your Bible, just do a Bible search of Mary Magdalene. Uh, these Mary Magdalene and another Mary and other women like Salome, the mother of James and John, were with Christ and serving the needs of Christ and his disciples, uh, faithfully following Christ. And they are those who we see at the cross, faithfully seeing the Savior crucified. We know from Luke, they, they didn't do so without mourning. They, they weren't sitting there celebrating in victory, which would have been inappropriate. But they also weren't sitting there with the knowledge of what was coming. Although they had heard, we, we see that they did not take that to heart. Uh, they were not changed into believing that based on their actions that come. And as we looked at last week, Joseph of Arimathea buries the body of Christ. And there are two, at least two of them who observe that. In verse 47 we saw, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where they laid him. And so these, these ladies uh, both observed the death of Christ and then observed where Joseph of Arimathea placed Christ. And so you, you need to think about what the, the last three days have been for these ladies. You need to consider what this has looked like for them. So Friday, these women witnessed the crucifixion. They, they saw the bloodied, battered Christ tortured by Roman authorities. They observed what was going on. And we, as I said, we saw from Luke uh, that there were tears in the process as they were mourning Him. And they heard the words of Christ as He clarifies for them, as He cries out from the cross, as He is making known what He is accomplishing. But you can imagine the emotional turmoil that is for these ladies. And two of them then observe as, as everything is going down over a period of hours, and then they observe Joseph of Arimathea bury him. And so this all happens on Friday. Saturday is the Jewish day of rest. They're commanded to Sabbath. That, remember, is why Joseph of Arimathea is trying to get Jesus off the cross before sunset. Uh, because in the Jewish calendar, that Sabbath is starting that night. What we consider... Friday night is to them the beginning of Saturday, the Sabbath. And so they are spending a day of mourning in their day of resting. They're recognizing the Jewish Sabbath. Then on Sunday, which again for them would start what for us would be Saturday evening, most likely Sunday night to us or Saturday night to them, Sunday morning to us, 
they're gathering these herbs, spices, oils, or they already had them, uh, and they're waiting because they can't go running through the wilderness doing this, right? What do you do when it's dark? You just pull out your torch, as the British would say, because it used to need to be torches. These ladies are anxious. They are waiting because as soon as they can get out, as soon as they know it will be light at the tomb, before it's light, at the breaking of dawn, uh, they are heading toward that tomb. So much so that it tells us that morning on Sunday, as they're heading out to it, uh, they're in anxiety of asking one another, are we, what are we going to do when we get there? Because we saw the tomb. We saw the giant stone that's in the way. How are we going to accomplish our plan? They were not expecting Jesus to be resurrected. right? They didn't bring Him happy Easter balloons. They're not bringing Him flowers to say happy resurrection day. They are bringing spices and oils. They're bringing what modernly, not for exactly the same reasons, but would be thought of, what do you do when someone dies? You show condolence. You honor them with flowers. That's a normal Western tradition. In the ancient world, it is one to take away the stench of death. We saw Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus do the same. Um, but these ladies, in knowing what was done to Jesus' body, is doing what they would believe honors Him. And so they're bringing oils and spices. They're heading to say, this is what the right thing to do is in honoring Christ in His death. They're not considering the fact that we're going to find Christ resurrected. And as they head and they consider the tragedy that has come and all that has happened and seeking to do the right thing, it seems either they just like faithful ladies are like, well, we'll figure it out when we get there, right? Somebody among them was just like, we're still going, but they're still talking amongst themselves. Amongst themselves. How are we even going to do this? What are they functioning in? They're functioning in the grace and the kindness of God of who they were. These are women who served Christ throughout His life. And so as they're wondering how they're going to serve Christ throughout His life, even in His death, their consideration is, how do we serve and honor Him now? Without the forethought or the function of exactly how this is going to happen, they are compelled in all the emotion, everything that's gone on over the last three days for them, we are getting up early and we are going to honor the body of Christ as soon as it is biblically permissible and that we're not in the Sabbath and resting and it is visibly permissible that we can have some light there and, and know what we need to do. And they're heading there. But there's shock in finding what they find. They're heading, they're asking the questions, and you look at verse 4, but looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And it was a very large stone. As these ladies get to the tomb, they're shocked to see their question, God has already taken care of. Right? And we, we don't know the moments that went on with them, but you can imagine the speculation. It's a very large stone. So as they're, they're walking up, I mean, maybe some of their hearts are, are kind of bouncing like, oh, I guess God already took care of that. They have no idea how much God already took care of that. They're shocked. They're surprised to see this very large stone that we have spent our time walking to the grave considering how are we going to move this stone. We get there and the stone is moved. And the answer to their question is not the answer that they had assumed. See, they're thinking, how are we going to do what's, Christ, what's right to take care of the body of Christ in death, to honor Him? They're considering what they can do to serve Him. They're considering the struggles and the trials of their getting there to serve Him. What they're thinking about and the questions that they have and how they're going to honor Christ are failing to think about how Christ has already told them what He's going to do. The answer to the question, verse 5, as they enter the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. 
Now, Mark just describes the form or the, the visible form of, of this angel. We see from the other Gospels that uh, this is not just a young man, uh, but looking like a young man, this is an angel. And we see that their shock and alarm is not just because they're scared of young people. Uh, it's because this is an angel. And it appears, as much as you might think, like, why would they be afraid? Why could they do this? It appears to me that fear is a right response to a vision of an angel or to an angel coming to you, right? Think about everyone you know throughout Scripture that an angel came to them. What are the words that come out of the angel's mouth? Don't be afraid, right? Why are they telling him that? Because they know they're going to be. It's a, it's a response of care. Don't be afraid. I'm here for a reason. Fear is not the reason. I'm not here to scare you. I'm here to tell you something. As these women are fearful, uh, the angel in kindness of God says, do not be alarmed. Do not be shocked. Do not be afraid. And then he tells them what they came to do. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Right? But then he answers their question for them. How is this all going to work out? How is it all going to come together? How are we going to honor Christ in His death? And the answer is not one they expect. The answer is, He's not dead. You have come to show your faithfulness to Him. But He has shown His faithfulness to all. He's not here. He's risen. He is not here. He says, see the place where he laid, they laid him. Right? These are the ladies. When he's telling these ladies specifically, remember, these ladies saw where he was laid. They watched Joseph of Arimathea lay him in the tomb. They knew the stone that would be there. All their concerns were, how are we going to honor Christ in getting there? How will we honor the death of Christ? And he answers the question for them. You're asking the wrong question. He is not dead. He is risen. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The answer is the words that Christ has already said. How true for our lives also. But for theirs. As they're coming to, what are we going to do now? It's been three days since he's dead. We were held up by the Sabbath. We can't honor him. This three days have passed. Now it's Sunday. He died on Friday. How are we going to move the, tomb, the, the stone? How are we going to get in there, honor the body of Christ? They forget the question's already been answered. What's going to happen in three days? He will rise again. Mark 8.31, 9.31, 10.34. We already looked at, and those are just a summary of Christ's ongoing statement to them. The answer is that He will not be dead. He is risen. Their questions are not the relevant question. They see everything before them. They are bent and built to serve. These are women who love to do this. They are faithful in it. And they wanting to serve Christ with all of their strength come to get there to find out you're not coming here to do this in your strength. He's already accomplished something in His strength. Their very human response to fear over this angel to fear over what he said. We would be arrogant to think we would have done any better at the time. To live any better. That if you would have got to the empty tomb, you would have remembered, you would have known, you would have seen. You would have heard it. To think that your heart and your mind somehow would have accomplished this better. But the Word of God is clear to us. If you do not believe the words of God, if you do not believe what He has said, then you will not believe the work of God. If you've already rejected what He has declared, you will not accept what He has done. What do I mean? Well, I mean what Jesus said, that even if a man came back from the dead to tell people, this is what God has accomplished, 
This is what God is doing. This is the reality that you have sinned against a holy God and you must repent. They would not respond if they had not responded prior. Man in himself does not need more information or more miracles or more signs or more things to see. If their heart is hardened toward what God has declared and has been made known to them, it will not be softened by mere words and experiences. I'm referencing the parable of Luke 16. Uh, when we see a rich man and a, and a man named Lazarus, Lazarus, the poor man, dies, and the rich man dies, and the rich man is in hell, essentially. And he requests to Abraham and says, let me go back to my brothers. I have brothers who have lived just like me and they need to repent. He says, let me go back to them. And Jesus uses this parable to declare to the Pharisees their faithlessness. And he says, even if a dead man rose from the dead to declare to them, if they have not listened to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced should someone rise from the dead. It is not simple vision of the miracle that saves. It's the grace of God that saves His people. No miracle will convince them if they don't believe their hearts are dead. Nothing will change that. And that's true for all mankind other than the grace and the power of God. The disciples were not saved by a momentary vision of Christ. They weren't even saved by 40 days of living with Him in His resurrection. They were trained. They were called. They were compelled. They were told what was going to happen. And they were shown the grace of God and given the power of the Spirit to have within them the prophecy fulfilled that He would pay for their sins and that they would repent and believe because of the forgiveness of sin and the power of Christ and proclaim that message. They are witnesses, but it is not their experience as witnesses that saves them. Their experience compels them and calls them and commands them to declare what saves. Christ. We see that in the disciples, even as these ladies later, as Mark ends, these ladies were afraid. It makes very clear there's no human effort involved here. It is the resurrection of Jesus. As you, I know we've looked at it slowly over two years, but if you're just reading Mark through, you can see it's coming. His resurrection is on the way. Everything that he said is happening. And particularly in these last sections, he said it's going to happen, it's happening. And how does the book end? As abruptly as it started. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Christ. John proclaimed He's coming and He came. And it ends just as aggressively. He said they would, burn, they would beat Him, they would torture Him, they would crucify Him, and three days later He would rise again, and He did. Done. And they were afraid. Now the, the other Gospels make clear to us, uh, in their fear, they did eventually communicate to the disciples. But their communication to the disciples doesn't show. This isn't a battle of the sexes in the Gospels. This is the declaration of humanity that the mere words and experience are not going to save. Because as they declare to the disciples, the disciples' first response isn't, you silly ladies, of course we knew He was going to rise from the dead. What do they say? No, Luke 24 tells us these words seemed like an idle tale to them. They did not believe them. They all responded in astonishment. Luke 24 goes on to tell us, as Jesus has appeared to Peter, He's appeared to uh, these men walking on the road to Emmaus. Jesus is now appearing uh, in resurrected form to His disciples. Mark 24, 36 gives us one of these accounts. And it says, as they were talking about these things, that Jesus was appearing. So they're discussing it, Right? Jesus showed up to Peter. These, these men were on the road to Emmaus and Christ came and showed Himself to them. And as they're discussing it, what happens? Jesus Himself stands among them. And He said to them, Peace to you. But they're startled and frightened. Thought they saw a spirit. And He said to them, Why are you troubled? 
And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me, see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, have you anything to eat? Verse 42, and they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are a witness of these things. Even as Jesus is before them, their emotions, their thoughts, all of this, they're confused. They're troubled. They doubt. They're struggling to believe. And he communicates to them what he said. He shows them the Scripture. says He opens His mind in the same way on the road to Aramaeus. He explains to them the Word of God so that they can logically see these things come together. He is kind to them in expressing it to them. He's kind to them in even showing to them. He is the resurrected Savior. He says, bring me food. I'm not a spirit. I have bones and flesh. He's in a resurrected body. And He eats. And he declares to them that they are witnesses for a purpose to declare repentance and the forgiveness of sin. You see how they're struggling to believe, even as it says in verse 41, and while still they disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. What does that mean? That was my first question as I'm reading it. While they disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. They're stuck in this human state of, I don't believe this is happening. They feel like, almost like, I can't, it's, how do we describe it? It's like I was watching something happen to myself. It was like an out-of-body experience. My emotions seemed so excelled at the moment of what was happening. That they're wrapped up with joy and marvel and still these doubts flooding in their head of how is this all going to be accomplished? And he declares to them the truth of what he's done. The hope of the gospel is that by faith we are counted righteous. Because our repentance is not just a feeling of guilt. Our repentance is not just the recognition that we're not that great or that good. It's not just the recognition that we've done wrong. Repentance, 1 Timothy says, is a gift of God. That God would give grace in repentance. That hearts would be changed, transformed. Repentance is not the mere work of man. It is a grace of God that man would repent. It's the difference between what uh, 2 Corinthians describes as worldly grief and godly grief. They look the same at the beginning. You recognize your sin. You see that you've done evil. You, we have words for people who don't see that they've done evil. We call them sociopaths. You know you're evil. You know you're guilty. But the difference between worldly grief... You know you're bad. You just look at everyone else and you try to either destroy yourself saying, well, I'll never be as good as them. Or you try to uplift yourself say, at least I'm not as bad as them. But what godly grief leads to is repentance. It leads to a turning from sin. And not in a worldly way of just, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. In a completely freeing way. In that repentance of sin is because the forgiveness of sins are proclaimed in Christ. The power of repentance is not that you've just recognized you're bad and something needs to change. In godly repentance, you recognize that sin has been paid for in Christ. So those verses we talked about last week, as you have been immersed with Him in a death like His, that means your sin is paid for in His death. 
Therefore, you are not just recognizing I'm a bad person that needs a little bit of help. You're recognizing everything in me deserves to be condemned to death. But I'm not. Why? Because in Christ's death, my sin was forgiven. My sin was paid. My sin is over. My life is not about saying I'm sorry over and over and over again until it's enough for God. It's about recognizing, as Danny said, I can never measure up. And of myself, I am completely dead in righteousness. And Faith Bible Ministry, I think we're good at recognizing that. We're dead in sin. We will never measure up. But Christian, it's not you recognizing how dead you are that saved you. You recognizing how dead you are is a gift of Christ. And while the battle of life often seems to us as the heart, we're trying to get our hearts aligned. The battle of the Christian life is one of the mind. To come to terms what He's already done in your heart. And we live like the disciples, often in disbelief and joy. We can't believe that new life could be true in us because we fail to recognize how sinful we were. And we think about our sin and, and we think we've got to do something. We've got to make this right. I've got to repent. I've got to turn from my sin and flee to something else. And we forget what we're fleeing to is Christ. Because forgiveness is proclaimed not by how much you hate your sin. Forgiveness is proclaimed in that you love your Savior. Because He has saved you. You hate your sin because it's sin. Because you've been given Christ's heart. What once brought you joy now brings you shame. Repentance is commanded and called for, and it is accomplished in Christ, in a new heart that longs to obey. And how do we see all this play out? These are, this is the hidden miracle of salvation. When Jesus says, there will come greater things, that the gospel of the kingdom of God is at hand, more will be accomplished. Well, what is the beginning of the kingdom of God? The first fruits of the church. A people who see the glory of God and long to praise Him and live for Him and honor Him. Hearts that are transformed and new. And the commands of the church are one to believe the truth. Believe the truth that this has been accomplished. Paul labors in Romans 4 to discuss that. In verse 24, he says, it, speaking of faith, belief, trust, dependence on God, it will be counted, speaking of righteousness, to those who believe Him who raised Jesus from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you do when you recognize sin? You repent. You flee from it. You, you run towards Christ. You recognize it as sin. You remind yourself that He has paid for my trespasses. I no longer want to live in them. He has justified me. He has saved me. Therefore, as we've been justified by Him in faith, we have peace with God. I am at peace with God. I don't want to live as though I'm at war with Him. Ignoring Him, living in sin. I want to flee from that and live in righteousness. And you think, that's confusing and difficult. Yes, it's why Paul, when he starts giving commands in Romans 12, says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Conform your mind to what He has declared is true in you. It's why Ephesians tells us to awake from our sleep. Ephesians 5, 14 through 20, he says, Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God and the Father 
to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The power of Christ means that in Him, the resurrection doesn't end in fear. It also doesn't end in apathy. The initial observers of the resurrection were afraid. They were fearful. They didn't know what was happening. They were confused. I don't think our issue is that we're fearful. It's we're apathetic. We don't care. We don't consider new life. We're not afraid of what's going to happen immediately. We're apathetic to new life because we're so worried about what's happening right now. What's going on? How can I fix all these problems? We're like the woman walking to the tomb saying, how am I going to remove the stone that is stopping me from putting flowers on the stench of death? And meanwhile, he's removed the stone. He has risen. Life is new. But we know that and we hear that. But we don't respond in fear. Because we're not seeing the miraculous happen in front of us. We respond in apathy. Because we don't think we need new life. We don't smell the stench of death. We've surrounded ourselves by so many flowers and oils. We think, if I could just keep things smelling the way they are. We believe the world that hears the aroma of Christ as the call to death. And we forget that we are Christians that hears the aroma of Christ's death as a call to life and risen in newness. It's so easy for us to be apathetic. To think the resurrection doesn't matter. To think it shouldn't change our course of life. To think it's just knowledge we need to have here. And we would really be transformed if we could have seen it. If we could have seen the greater miracles. And we ignore the fact that he has said the greater miracle is that the church, not even his people, Not those who were called as His. Not those who He brought from nothing and made a great nation. Not those who He declared the perfect way and they remained to sin against Him. But the pagans were called and given hearts transformed that would declare to Israel and to all the nations from Jerusalem and beyond that there is a work of God that is not like prior. There is a new covenant where hearts are transformed and regenerate, where people don't live just for the sake of Israel and their nation and their own righteousness, but for the sake of Christ in righteousness, free from the burden of sin, repenting, not because they can make themselves better and they can get one step forward and they can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, but because they were dead in the grave of sin. But He has risen and they now have new life. It is so easy for me to have mornings like this where I feel emotional about the reality of what Christ has accomplished in me. And what often makes me more emotional is it's so easy for me to wake up on Monday, grab a cup of coffee, start telling kids to hurry up, we got to get to school, and not think about this at all. To not even consider this until 9, 10 o'clock in my day when I get to my office. In the days where that's not, I wake up, I read my Bible. How easy is it for you to read your Bible, to get yourself right with God through Bible reading, to get in your car, and the same tongue that was praising God is cursing your neighbor who won't get out of your way in the fast lane because they don't know that's to pass, not to drive. I, I hate, I don't hate. I'm confused. I have both disbelief and joy, just like the disciples, every time I'm emotional on a Sunday morning. Because I think, I don't want to do that. Because my goal is not to compel you by my own emotion. But just like you, I'm sure when you declare the truth of what Christ has done, you can't help but think of yourself and the reality of what he's done. You can't help but rejoice in the fact that he could forgive me. That he has paid the penalty of my sin. That I can have hope to go on tomorrow and to have newness in life. Not because I figured it out. 
Because he's faithful. Not because I got to the tomb and did the right thing. Because when I got to the tomb thinking I could do all the right things, he was already risen. He already accomplished it. He already finished the work. And I just need to trust and depend on him in such a way that what he has done to my heart in this present life will not live continuing conforming my mind to the world, but to say, what has he said? And is faithful and is true. And how do I live for that now? How do I stop looking to remove the stone and start declaring that he has risen again? It does start with recognizing your sin and your death. I had someone telling me earlier in the week about how we need to stop talking about sin and we need to preach victory in Christ. People are so burdened, not our church specifically, but the church in general. And I'm listening and hearing and thinking even of the passages that I'm in this morning. And I think so often what we confuse in, in that idea that we can't tell people about their sin and their need for repentance, we confuse the message that Christ proclaimed. The message of Christ was not stop thinking about sin and have newness in life for me. It is repent of sin. Run from it. Flee from it. And have newness of life in Him. It is no longer live in it, but you're aware of it. You know it. And it comes creeping and catching and you find you're still in the world and being conformed to the world to flee from it and run to Him. Again and again, we are told in the Scriptures, sin will entangle you. It will surround you. He is very honest with us. Our solution is not to ignore it. And it's not to think that we battle it on our own and if we just recognize it enough and we just fight it enough and we just tell it it's evil enough. But it's to depend in Christ and flee from it. To know what is all around us. To know what is pulling in every direction except toward Christ. And we run only in that direction. I want to take a 15-minute break and then move to a message on the church and God's design in that and all of that. But we're not going to do that. We're going to take a seven-day break. No, six-day. We're coming back. On the seventh, and, uh, and then we're going to come back and talk about these last verses in Mark and the Bible and the authority of the Bible and the Word of God and why we trust the Word of God. Uh, and then Danny's going to preach a couple weeks in the Psalms, uh, actually number sixteen, and then the Psalms. And then we'll celebrate Christmas. And then following, we will be uh, continuing in the book of First Corinthians uh, sometime in the beginning of the year. So I just want to tell you that now before I forget, as it was in my notes and. This doesn't fit all the homiletic ending of how I should wrap and tidy things up. Uh, but you're faithful believers. I want you to know where we're going. And I want you to read ahead. So in your Bible reading and what you're prepping for, start reading 1 Corinthians. Start pursuing to hear His Word and be encouraged in His Word and encourage one another in it. 